Well, we just appreciate so much that time of worship today. And as you're worshiping there at home and about ready to hear from God's Word, we just appreciate so much the fact that we can get together. And I hope that you're not getting tired of this. I hope that you're using it as a time with your family, a time where you can uh, even go Zooming or whatever you're doing with your friends and uh, just be a great time of spiritual growth there as you're meeting with the Lord at the home. And so we want to take our Bibles this morning. We're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I have a specific reason for, for going through this series of messages during the next few weeks through the book of 1 Peter. But we know that as this coronavirus is taking shape, as it's affecting us, not just us in America, but all over the world, we know that there's suffering that is going on. And one of the things that we notice in the world is that all of us, including Christians, being part of the world, being in the world, we should say, also suffer. Now, hopefully, you're not suffering for doing what is wrong because certainly there's a certain amount of suffering that goes on because of what we do. And hopefully, as a believer, you can avoid much of that. But sometimes there's also persecution that goes on because we are Christian believers. So there's all kinds of suffering and trials in the world. Let me read a story that happened just a couple of years ago. In fact, in 2017, on Palm Sunday, there was an attack on two Egyptian uh, churches by ISIS. And during this attack, there was a family led by their dad, the, the husband, Michael Nabil Regib. And as he was a deacon in the church, he was going to lead music that Sunday. He was up front of the church of the choir where the bomb really took effect. And here his wife, Sarah, gives a testimony of what had happened there at the end. She said this, it was about 10 minutes past nine. All of a sudden, I heard the sound of a big explosion. The church shook like there was an earthquake. The smoke filled the church and it became dark. I heard people screaming. I was screaming too. I was screaming the name of my husband. I rushed to the place of the deacon choir where I hoped to find him alive. It is difficult for Sarah to continue her story, but she says what I saw on my way to him was horrible, like a massacre and just taken place, the bodies of dead people, members and pools of blood. Then I saw my husband and I was in shock as he was lying there like the others, gone to heaven like he had sensed would happen even earlier in the day. Sarah and Michael had been married for four years. Sarah and daughter Priscilla will have to continue their lives without their beloved husband and father. I loved him so much, Sarah said. She sees it as a sacrifice for Christ, but not one she has to deal with alone. Despite everything, God has put comfort and peace in my heart. Now, how do we deal like Sarah dealt with her problem, with her suffering, with the persecution that was going on in her life. How do we do that? Well, First Peter's about that. First Peter is a book of hope. That's why the, the title, Captured by Hope. But it's about a book about suffering and how to deal with that suffering as a Christian believer. Because one of the marks of maturity, and one of the things we're trying to do here at Cross Life Church is to equip people, arm people, to go out into the world and face the adversities of life, face, face the sufferings of life that come, and the difficulties of life, and the challenges, and come out on top. She did. How can we know Jesus is going to be with us? Now, this book, again, is all about equipping us 
for suffering, equipping us on how to really handle the problems we go through in life. But not every verse is about that. But we have to read the book in the light of what the, the original readers were going through at that time. For example, next week, we're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7. It says this, In this we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, it, perishes though it is tested by fire. Now, that's a key word, because over here in the, the fourth chapter, the second, yeah, the fourth chapter, excuse me, that we'll find in verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to, be, to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. One of the things that I just want to bring out from those couple of verses before we get started this morning is that there is a theme there of the word fire. The idea of fire coming to you and refining you in some way, making you more mature in Christ. Now, you know as well as I do that just because you go through a trial doesn't mean you're going to come out better. As a matter of fact, some people come out bitter. Here's the same trial, maybe happening in the same country, in the same circumstances, and one person comes out better. They come more humble before the Lord now. They've learned something about themselves. On the other hand, there's someone else that comes across bitter. They're, they're brokenhearted in their life. They'll never get over it. So how do you and I know that God is with us in the trial and the fire? Now, one of the things that brings out that I thought about when I read this book is Daniel chapter 3, the very familiar story to all of us about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They go into the fiery furnace. They would not uh, worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And so he threw him into the fire. And the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar got so upset, so mad, that he made the, the furnace seven times hotter than it normally is. And it was so hot, the Bible says that the guards that threw those three Hebrews into the fire were burned up themselves. They died themselves. So Nebuchadnezzar somehow got to a spot where he could see into the furnace, and he said this. He says, I don't see three people in the furnace, but I see four walking around, not even getting burned. And he perceived, even though he wasn't a believer, wasn't a follower of God, he perceived that one of them was like a son of God. And so we find a picture there where Jesus is walking around in the midst, in the trial, in the fire with those who are following him. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that God's going to be with us in the midst of the trial? After all, we've seen a lot of things go on in this, this world. Maybe we've looked at something in the past and wonder if God really, is, really was there for us. So how do we know that God's going to be with us in the trial? Well, we want to look at that this morning as we look at the book of 1 Peter in chapter 1. And as we look at these first few verses, I want us to see three things. First of all, key, key things to armor, to arm us, I should say, to go out into the world and face the trials of life. One of them is who we are. Secondly, how we know who we are. And then thirdly, what we have in light of that. I want us to first of all see in verse 1 who we are. 
Now, notice it says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, normally, in a book like this, I would, I would sort of gloss over that and say, oh, by the way, Paul or Peter or John was the author of the book. But we need to understand what's going on in the life of Peter. Sometimes we think that people that give us advice or people that try to help us are living in an ivory tower somewhere, and they really don't know what we are really going through. But Peter suffered just like we have suffered in many different ways, various ways. For example, can you imagine how he felt as he was walking on the water? Remember the story where he got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and then he saw the waves around him and began to sink, and he had to cry out to Jesus, Lord, help me, help me. Well, Jesus helped him. He grabbed him up by the hand and pulled him out. He's on the boat. He's soaking wet. Don't you know the embarrassment that he felt with his lack of faith? What about in the upper room? What about when Jesus was talking about his death and Peter said, Lord, even though everybody else leaves you, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. And Jesus told him, he said, Peter, before morning comes, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny even knowing me three different times. Can you imagine what's going through his mind? He says, that'll never happen. But yet he knows he's talking back to a person who's never been wrong. And he knows that. And so he leaves the upper room. He's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane with this weight, this burden upon his mind and heart so much that it spent him out emotionally, so bad that he went to sleep in the garden when he should have been praying. But he's spent out emotionally. Why? Because he's thinking to himself, first of all, all this is going to come to an end perhaps because what Jesus has prophesied, but also himself. It's like the man who loses his job. He's riding around in the car all day, dreading, dreading the weight of having to go home and tell his wife and children they don't have a way to pay, make the house payment. It's like the person or the woman will say that goes to the doctor and she gets the prognosis and the diagnosis, I should say, of, of cancer. And she's driving home and she's thinking, how am I going to tell my kids? How am I going to the weight of it, the dread of it, the suffering of it. And then finally, as he was there warming himself by the fire and actually denying even knowing the Lord three times, the defeat that had to be in the heart of Peter. And now, from a point of experience, he writes to these Christians and they know, well, listen, this is a man who's been through it. Let's listen to what he has to say. Not only the word of God, but a voice of experience as well. Well, we look at this Peter, the apostle, who's writing this book, and he says, I'm writing to those who are elect exiles, the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, as he's talking to these recipients, they're really in Asia Minor, the modern-day Turkey, around that area, and he's talking to them as though he's making allusion back to the Old Testament, back to the Jewish people. And he's saying to them, just like they were dispersed when Assyria took over the nation of of Israel, you are dispersed now. You're scattered in a place that is not your home. That's the emphasis here. You're just scattered around. You have no place really to be. And this word, exile, actually, we get our word resident alien. It's like a person that uh, is from one country but lives in another. Maybe he has a visa, green card has a visa and he's living in the, maybe in the neighborhood and, and people are friendly to him and they're nice to him, but they think he's weird. 
Why do they think he's weird? Because, well, he's from the United States. And, you know, we just, we just live different. We act different. We're more independent than most. And uh, we say what maybe is on our mind. And we're just, we're just different. Well, that's, that's kind of weird. Or you, maybe you're living it even in a, uh, a Middle Eastern or, or an Eastern country. And the, the customs are totally different. And you're looking at them. Man, that guy is str- nice guy. Uh, but the, you can tell this is not his home. Well, this is an alien. And he's speaking and he's saying to us, we're pilgrims and we're always going to struggle to fit into this world. We're never really going to fit in. This is, this is just not our home. We're, we're not comfortable where we are. We struggle with that comfort to fit in, to try to, even churches trying to say, look, we're just trying to be all things to all people, all things to all people. So people will come in to our midst and feel comfortable maybe in our church. The problem to that is that's not down through history how it's worked, but rather we've been friendly. We've been loving. We've been caring. We've ministered to people, but yet people could look at us and say, there's something different there. They're not at home here. It seems like we don't fit into this world. And as we're looking at that, we think to ourselves, what, who are we? Who are we in Christ? Because that is paramount. That is so vitally important to know that in order to overcome suffering and deal with suffering and put it in its proper perspective. So uh, who are you? You say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. You know, that's where I get my identity. Somebody else says, I'm an engineer. I get my, uh, my identity by being a business owner, by being a mother. You know, I've heard people say, well, above all things, I, uh, I'm, I may be an engineer or a doctor or I may be a teacher, but I love to go on mission trips and I've been three or four a year for the last several years. And more than anything else, I guess I look at myself, I identify as a missionary. And we have even sexual identity going on today. I identify as this, I identify as that. Do, do we remember who we are? My dad was saved at the age of uh, almost 43. And I often give his testimony because it's part of my testimony in our uh, dinner with a pastor uh, get together. But I asked him not too long ago as he's um, suffering from Alzheimer's and uh, he, can, he can function, uh, you know, friendly, but he can't remember anything now that maybe has gone on even uh, an hour before. And I ask, I've asked him from time to time, do you remember how you were saved? Because he knows still that he's saved. And one day he told me, he said, no. I can't tell you how I got saved. He's almost like it's, it's forgetting who you are. Do you, do you know who you are? Because see, here's, here's the thing. First and foremost, as we receive Christ into our heart, I'm not a pastor first. I am a Christian first. I identify, I must identify as a Christian first. Because whatever I identify with is what I'm going to put my trust in is what I'm going to be, be fulfilled for. And anything else gets taken away from me. You know, you're an engineer, and man, that's really important to you. But one day you're going to retire. So where is that all going to go then? You know, you're a parent, and you think to yourself, yeah, more than anything else, I, I pour myself into my children. Well, one day there's going to be an empty nest. What about then? Who are you going to be then? When the trials of life come in our family, do you realize that you are a believer first. When the trials come in our business world, 
Do you realize that you are a believer first? Do you find your home in Jesus Christ more than any other thing? Notice how he says we got here because this is important as we look at who we are. How can we know? He says you're an elect exile according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, this word election, or in some of your versions, chosen, we know that that can be a kind of a controversial thing because we cannot understand everything about the mind of God. We know that without the drawing of the Spirit, John chapter 6, we cannot be saved. We know that the Holy Spirit draws us to salvation. We know the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. We know in some, some form or another, God places his hand upon our life, and that's very, very personal. Also in the Bible, particularly, say, in the book of Ephesians, and even right here, as he's comparing us to the nation of Israel, why is he comparing us? Well, in the Old Testament, there was a chosen man, and that man was Abraham. Now, the Bible says that the Jewish race is the chosen race in the Old Testament. It is the chosen nation. But it was chosen because of Abraham. Now, I want Abraham to be represented by this cup, all right? This is who Abraham is. Now, everyone who is born from Abraham has become the elect of the Old Testament. And therefore, the nation of Israel, very, very important in God's timetable of history. Very important people to God. All these people were then in Christ. You, know, you have David, you have uh, Isaac, you have Jacob, you have the prophets. All those are claiming identity in Abraham with the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, a book of Ephesians says that Christ is the chosen one. God has chosen Christ to die on the cross, to be resurrected on that third day, to go up into heaven to make intercession for us and to send his Holy Spirit down to this earth to minister to us and in us every day. He is the chosen one. We are in Christ. How do we become in Christ? We receive Christ as our Savior and Lord, and we become corporately also elected in him. And you say, well, man, that is, that is really complicated. And it is. And very few people, I'm, I don't know if you know, I say very few, I'm trying to be nice. Nobody understands that. We're not God. We don't understand about the, the chosenness and how, and you say, well, God calls everybody to repentance. I agree with that. But you have to admit, he, he seems to call some more than others. We have here in America and places in Africa and places, other places in the world, a more of an outpouring of God's spirit over the, over the centuries than maybe other countries have had. There's a mystery there. But here's the message that Peter wants to tell us today. Are you ready? Peter said, God knows me. As a matter of fact, he knew me before time was even here. Because God is the great I am, meaning he's always in the present. He knows the past, present, future, and Peter says he knows. He knew everything about me, and nobody would have chosen me to be an apostle. No one would have chosen me to be a disciple. But Jesus laid his hand upon me, and I was important to him, and even though he knew everything about me, he still loved me. He still wanted me. And Peter's message to these Christians today, and for us today, as well as in his day, God still wants you. He knows about your sins of the past. He knows about your weaknesses. He knows about your present suffering. He knows about the future that's going to come. But he loves you anyway. He loves you. He wants you. And you're sitting there at home and you're thinking, I'm so defeated. I'm so deflated. I feel like the, the wind has been knocked out of my sails. But he still wants you. 
And first and foremost, above any other thing, whatever's going on in your life, you are a Christian first. Your identity is in Jesus Christ, and that can never be taken away. I want you to notice in this passage, it talks about the foreknowledge. All this is based upon God knowing in the future. He knows, prognosko in the Greek, simply means God knew it beforehand. He is the great I am. I want you then to look, and he says there's a purpose behind all this. He says the foreknowledge of God and the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification means to be set apart. The Holy Spirit has come to set us apart, and that's how we feel. We're not at home. And then he says, for obedience, there's a purpose here, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Talking about salvation there, the sprinkling of his blood. We'll come back to that maybe in just a few moments. But he says, first of all, he says, this is to obedience. You've been saved to glorify God by your obedience. He elaborates this. I'm going to get ahead of myself in the next few, for, the, for two weeks from now. Uh, or back, actually, two or three weeks from now. But he says in chapter 2, verses 11, verse 11 and 12, God says this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners or strangers, uh, he says, and exiles, coming back to verse 1, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they may speak against you as they cannot speak against you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here we find this purpose of obedience. Very quickly, God has gone through the wrath. Jesus Christ went through the wrath of God. In fact, in Gethsemane, it says that he took the cup of wrath. He took the fire for us on the cross. And he says, when we have that fire within us, when rather when we accept what Jesus Christ has done for us, it's going to change our life. And he says specifically in two ways to help us to be armed to, uh, to uh, handle adversity. Two things. He says, first of all, a holy life. It's a changed life. Verse 11. First John 2, 3 talks about this where he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. There's a change in our life that we have a new desire in our heart to follow the Lord. A holy life. And he says good deeds in verse 12. A changed life produces changed actions. Actions of forgiveness. In fact, um, one writer alluded to the fact that this is really talking probably back at the Sermon on the Mount. Talking about the original words of Jesus and his life. And he says there's, there's four things that come out from this passage and the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, he says, you're going to show forgiveness to others, generosity to others. You're going to respond positively to adversity. And there's going to be sexual purity in your life. He says, controlling the passions of your life. Here's what he's saying. Peter is saying, look, it's important it's vital. You, you, can, you will not be armed to handle the adversities of life. They will handle you unless you know that Jesus Christ has saved you, that he took the wrath, the fire of judgment for you. And so, in conclusion of this first point, and really the message that we, we experienced this morning in this, in this uh, text is this. When you know that Jesus has gone through the fire for you, you know he will go through the fire with you. First, you know who you are, 
And because of that, you know he's with you always. But then we ask ourselves the question, how do we know that? Why are we that way? Why are we uh, part of God's kingdom? I want you to look back with me real quickly in verse 2. When he talks about obedience to the, to the uh, sprinkling of the blood of Christ, then in verse 3 he says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Here's what he's talking about. He's saying, you know that you've passed from death into life. You know that the, God has taken on the fire of judgment for you because you've been born again. Now, this word is kind of a confusing word. You know, you even have people today saying, well, I don't think I'm a born-again Christian. I'm just a Christian. That, saying that you're a born-again Christian is like you're saying that, uh, you know, you're a little shrimp, Okay. Uh, you're, little, you're little and small. Paul Little, who used to write a lot of books, I don't know where Paul Little is today, but I've got a couple of books in my library that he wrote, and he used to say that his name is a picture of redundant, a redundancy because the word Paul in the Greek means small. And so he says, my name is Small Little. Saying you're a born-again Christian is just repeating yourself. There's no such thing, according to the Bible, as a non-born-again Christian. Now, sometimes we think in our society, Christian means a good person. And maybe you are. As far as society, as far as culture is concerned, you're a good person. Maybe you're spiritual. Maybe you're religious. But to be called a Christian, the word means Christ-like or Christ in one. Christ in us. That's what it means. And to have Christ in you, you have to be born from above. As Jesus came up, or Nicodemus came up to Jesus, and he talked about being saved and following God, he, he said, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus said, well, Lord, how in the world am I going to crawl back into my mother's womb and be born all over again? He said, no, Nicodemus, you misunderstand me altogether. It's not that you have to be born again physically. You have to be born again spiritually. You have to be born of God, born from above. Now, how does that happen? Well, you and I come to the cross. We come to know Christ as our Savior and Lord by the Holy Spirit coming in, the Bible says, to ignite our old dead spirit. In fact, Ephesians puts it this way, if I can find this verse. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which we loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses or dead in our sins, we had no spiritual life made us alive together with Christ. He ignited, literally ignited our old dead spirit. So the Holy Spirit of God has come to live inside of us and we're born from above. We're born of God. It's not that we're a little bit better than we used to be. You know, I remember back when I was in college, um, we had a lot of assignments, a lot of reading to do. And so sometimes we'd go out and buy what we'd call the cliff notes. And what that was is just a kind of a synopsis of the book. And we would try to read that. And a couple of times, maybe I even tried to read that rather than the book, as though I was thinking the professor did not know anything about a cliff note. And therefore, he was going to take all of his te test questions right there from the cliff notes. It never worked out. But we think, well, that's the cliff notes. And, you know, the Christian, the born again guys are just the whole book. They have a lot more religious stuff and they go to church more, but it's just kind of piled on. You know, God's, God's kind of helped me as well. We're not talking about getting helped. I recall when David sinned against the Lord and he was repentant. And he cried out in Psalm 51.10. 
He said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now this word create, a very interesting word. In the book of Genesis, we find when God created the world, we find two different words for the word create. One is to take something out of nothing and create something out of it. That's the word barak. And then we find another word of the word that really means to make something, but it's still translated oftentimes created. It's just a different word for it. And it means to take something that already existed and make something else out of it. And so it's, in other words, it's one of those things where God created, said, let there be light. And there was no light before and God, there was light. But then the Bible says he took from the dust of the ground, he took dust from the ground, breathed in, made man, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. And so he made man out of something that already existed. This word in the Greek, in the Hebrew, in Psalm 51, the word create means not to reform something in my life, to, to take my heart out and kind of remold it, remake it, clean it up. No, David is saying, Lord, give me a brand new heart. And that is what being born again is all about. It's a brand new heart a brand new life, a born again. Have you ever gone through that? You, you and I, you and I cannot be sure that God is in a fire unless we know he's gone through the fire. Again, let me say, when we know that Jesus has gone through the fire for you, when you know that, then you know that he will go through the fire, the fire of life, the trials of life with you. And so has he gone through that wrath for you? Has he taken on your sin for you? Because here we have, in the conclusion of this, some really needed things to go through life and the adversity with it. Notice with me, he says to be born again, he says two, two things, two things here. He says, to a living hope, in verse four, to an inheritance. Two things that we need to have in our life in order to combat, combat adversity in our life. First, he says, a living hope. Now, hope is not wishful thinking. It, it, you know, biblical hope is not, well, I hope it's going to rain tomorrow. You have no idea. You're just hoping for something. Hope in the Bible has to do with faith. In fact, when we see the word faith defined in Hebrews 11, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, that's hope. That's the hope side of faith. It's something in the future. I know it's going to happen, and I'm looking forward to receiving it. It's an assurance there, a real biblical living hope, a hope that is alive. Now, hope is built on something. For example, you say, well, um, I hope and I believe, that's part of faith, that the sun's gonna rise tomorrow. What are you basing that on? Well, you're basing it on the past. Yet today, the sun came up. Yesterday, the sun came up. The day before that, the sun came up. So what are we basing our hope now? Our hope in the future, our hope in the afterlife, our hope that we're gonna be able to, God's gonna be with us in the fire through adversities of life. Notice what it says, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're called right back to what we had last week about Easter and the difference that Easter makes in our life. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in our heart right now that God can make a difference in our life today, right now. How do we know that? How do we know when we go to a funeral that we're, one day we're gonna be with Jesus in heaven? How do we know all these things? Well, it says here, we know it from the resurrection. You know, sometimes 
we think to ourselves that, um, for example, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I've read that all, you know, most of my life since I was a teenager. And when I first read it, I really felt like it was trying to prove Jesus rose from the dead, but it, that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, Paul already assumed that. He said to the church at Corinth, he said, 500 of you have seen him. Some of you are alive even right now. It wasn't that the church at Corinth was doubting uh, Jesus' resurrection. They were doubting their own. And the whole chapter was about this. It was about Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And since that, not if it happened, since it happened, we can be assured that we will one day rise with him. Jesus is like the first fruits and the rest of the harvest is coming. And he says, you want to know how we have a living hope. We have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have it in our hearts. So what does that mean? That means I can rest in him. I can trust in him. I can relax in him knowing he holds all the future no matter what I'm going through in life. You know, one of the things I like to do is um, watch college football, and I'm going to miss that this fall if it doesn't come back uh, that quickly. But sometimes I tape the games. I video the games and um, uh, on television because I'm afraid that I may not get home in time to watch something. I'm going to miss something. I can always watch it from the beginning. And so that's what I do. And I remember back in 2018, I think in January, uh, Georgia, University of Georgia, which is my favorite team since I'm originally from Athens. It's just sort of in me. You know, please forgive me for that. But um, they, uh, they were playing Oklahoma, the University of Oklahoma, in the, in the college playoffs, first round of the college playoffs. And the game just went back and forth. Jake Fromm from Georgia, the quarterback from Georgia, Baker Mayfield, the quarterback from Oklahoma, just going back and forth. There were long runs, long passes. It was just a, a scoring machine type of game. And it was a shootout. And there was a, several times I'm thinking to myself, there's no way we can come back now. There's no way we're going to win this thing. No way. No way. And we'd come back. And we'd think, oh, we got it. We got it. And they'd come back. It was so stressful. I didn't enjoy it at all, except for the end. And so uh, a few days later, I'm playing it back. And uh, Pam walks through the room and says, didn't that game just happen? And I said, yeah. And she said, why are you watching it again? It's already happened. You already know what's going to go on. I said, that's the reason I'm watching it. Now I can enjoy it because I know how it's going to end up. And I began to enjoy every play and everything that went on because I knew, hey, it's going to be okay. That's the way our life ought to be. Look, I know God's watching over me. I know God's going through the fire with me. I can relax now. I know what the end is going to be. I just need to do, as the Bible says, good deeds or obedience obedience to Jesus Christ. I need to live that way. And as long as I'm in obedience, as long as I'm in the path of blessing, God is going to come through for me. He says, there's a living hope. But then notice in this passage, he says, there's an inheritance as well. He says an inheritance, and he describes it, that's imperishable, that's never ending. It's undefiled. It's sinless. There's no sin in this inheritance in heaven. Then he goes on to say, it's unfading. And that is, there's, there's a beauty to it that'll never end. And he says, this is really the home. This is where you find your home. This is where you really belong. He says, it's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, his power, he's, he's guarding it. It's like a garrison. 
He's securing it for you. You see, not only does the Bible tell us that Jesus came and died on the cross for our salvation, not only does it tell us that the Spirit of God draws us to salvation, but that we're secure in that salvation. It's never ending. Eternal life begins the moment that you are born again, the moment that you receive Christ into your heart. And because of that, it's never ending. It's, it's incorruptible. It's, it's unfailing. It's undefiled. It's unfading in our life. It, it's really home. And this conviction that you can't even leave it. Now, God holds on to us. It's not that we, we hold on to, to him, but you can't quit. Once you're a really a, a believer in Christ, man, you just can't quit. It's like the man on the porch, and he's about to walk away from his family. And through the screen door, the children are crying. And he says, I've got to go. I've got to go. But I can't go. I, ju I just can't go. I can't leave. I just can't. We find it's, it's like the young person in college. And they've just maybe made a bad grade or something's happened to them or they lost the love of their life. I got to go. I got to leave. I, got, I have to go. But you just can't go. Because there's a connection there. You know you're where you're supposed to be. There's a home there. And right now, I mean, look, look at what we're experiencing around America. San Francisco with all the, the homeless problem. Los Angeles, Seattle. I was in India of, of several years ago, and people were living on the street and cooking on the street, and it, it, was, it was a mess. Why? Because the streets of San Francisco are not built to carry the burden of the whole life. You go to a, a park and there's tents, maybe cardboard boxes everywhere in the park, maybe in, in, in Delhi. And you think to yourself, well, well, here's just an open field and people are living everywhere. And there's cows tied and they go inside the little tent, the little hut. It's not even a tent, a little shack, one room shack. Look how people are living. Why are they living that way? Why can't they make it? Because it's not, it's not a home. Not really. Because the streets and the parks were never made to carry the burden of the whole life. And dear friend, your identity, your family was not meant to carry the burden of your whole life. Your job is not made to carry the weight of your whole life. When adversity strikes your finances, your bank account has never been made to carry the weight and burden of your whole life. They will always fail you. They're not equipped to give joy in your life, happiness in your life. They're not equipped to bring peace in your life, to bring comfort, to make a home in your life. Home, a place where God is, that's home. We know that when Jesus, we know that Jesus has gone through the fire for us at the cross. We will be assured, we will know he will go through the fire with us. Has he gone to the fire for you? Has he gone to the cross for you? Do you find yourself still a pilgrim and can't find a home? In this article that I read just a few moments ago, let me just read the, the last little paragraph as a close. It says about her husband, Sarah doesn't worry 
she knows he is in the place of the one he loved most. I am happy for him. He is in a good place now, she says, in heaven. In front of the throne of grace, he is there with Jesus. One assurance. Dear friends, who are we in Christ? We are Christians. We are part of his family. That's our identity. And nothing else, nothing else that's coming in our life can attack that. We're secure in that. We can base that on the most, the most important thing in our life is secure. Then we know that because we've been born again and Jesus lives in our heart in the representation of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we have a living hope and an inheritance, things like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control that gives us armor and weapons to fight against the adversities of life. And it all begins, Peter says, right there at the cross. He says the sprinkling in verse, way back in verse two, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Have you been there to the cross? If you have, you can rest assured. You, you need to remember who you are. That's my message for every Christian today. Remember who you are in Christ. That can never be taken away. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.